Welcome to the New Books Network. Islam Through Objects represents the state of the field of Islamic material cultural studies, with contributions from scholars of religion, anthropologists, art historians, folklorists, and other disciplines, Anna Bigelow brings together a wide range of perspectives on Islamic materiality to debunk myths of Islamic aversion to material aspects of religion. Each chapter focuses on a single object in daily use by Muslims, including prayer books, coins, amulets, clothing, jewelry, and bodily and domestic adornments to consider both generic and particular aspects of the object in question framed by an introduction that assesses the various approaches to Islamic material culture and recent scholarship, Islam Through Objects provides a template for the study of religion and material culture, which engages current theory, subtle and nuanced narratives, and the creative and imaginal capacity of Muslims through history. In our conversation, we discuss key subjects in material religion scholarship, theological foundations for Islamic notions of materiality, the uses of visual images, as historical vantage points, the role of objects as a means for marking and making identity, the life of material items in ritual and social action, and the future study of Islam through objects. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Here's my conversation with Anna Bigelow about Islam through objects, published with Bloomsbury in 2021. Welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm doing well. It's really great to be here. Thank you. I'm I'm a fan of the show. (laughs) Well, we're a fan of yours, uh, and especially with this new book, Islam Through Objects. It's a it's a really really cool project that that I've personally been excited about. uh, You know, hearing about this this work on material Islamic studies that you've been doing for a long time. So uh, I'm I'm excited to get into it. Um, Before we get to the book, though, uh, if you could. What's kind of your journey as an academic? What are uh, some of your background and training, um, perhaps uh, mentors or moments that have been influential in, in bringing you to uh, how you study Islam, your, the areas you're interested in? What's, what's your trajectory? Well, there's sort of a lot of ways into how I ended up studying this and studying, particularly getting increasingly drawn into the study of uh, Islamic objects or Islamic things and how that can be a really useful way to explore particular Islamic worlds in ways that are much more textured and exciting. And I think I could look back to when I first became really interested in religion, that I've always been fascinated by ritual. I've always been interested in religious processes that involve a lot of movements of bodies and space and objects and uh, smells and and tastes and resonances and sounds. And I think that that sensibility of always being very interested in, in the broader world in which doctrines and practices and theologies and conceptions are being actually lived out has, has really always drawn me. Um, so when I look back on my my training and I first started doing religious studies in college and um, uh, I was also an English major. I used to read novels once upon a time, <laughs> but um, now I feel like I don't do that nearly enough. Um, and then I went to India for a period of time in between my undergraduate and, and master's degree. And during that experience, I became particularly interested in a phenomenon of Muslims and non-Muslims interacting together at the same sacred spaces. And so that's really been one of the sort of animating frames for a lot of my research ever since is looking at places where Muslims and non-Muslims are, you know, doing things with each other, around each other, near each other, um, and are often motivated by many of the same um, hopes, dreams, uh, needs, and feelings that uh, are incredibly human. And so that's always felt to me like uh, an under, it, for a long time, it felt very understudied. I think it's it's starting to actually gain a lot of traction and people are bringing lots of new and interesting approaches to this that I'm hoping will be, um, will be creating a really uh, robust new um, field of study. Um, and that's another project that I'm working on in other ways. But um, 
throughout this, then when I started my PhD at UC Santa Barbara, one of my one of my mentors who works in India, uh, David Gordon White, um, asked me this question when I we were doing a translation of something together, and I, I don't even remember exactly what the what it was sort of a popular chapbook kind of thing, and one of the one of the points that was raised in the chapbook was um, about tying a thread in a particular way. And, um, and I, you know, was really just translating it and hadn't been, I wasn't analyzing it much in our discussion. And he said, I hope that you'll pay more attention in the future as much to the thread itself as to what the, it said that the thread does. So what, so it was, it was a question that kind of puzzled me at the time, because I was like, what does that mean to think about the thread itself and try to evaluate or assess a thread? Uh, as a as a material object, as opposed to as um, uh, a ritual instruction, that is simply what you do when you do it, and because that's the right way to do it. And so that's always kind of sat in my mind. And throughout my research, which is mostly based at Sufi shrines in India and sometimes in Turkey at shrines, particularly those devoted to Mary that are visited by Muslims and Christians. Um, I've been struck by the proliferation of things that move through those spaces. And so this has become uh, part of that sort of intellectual curiosity that's been, that goes back before college, but I think is starting to take on some increasingly uh, focus with this project and with a few other projects. So as you know, uh, Christian, uh, some years ago through the, uh, AAR, we had a session on material Islam, and that where I presented, and where another colleague of ours, Kondi's Ghanaya Basari at Reed College, and I sort of came out of that thinking we wanted to start a a focused uh, seminar within the AAR Islamic Studies groups on material Islam, so we could see what is essentially the state of the field. Um, religious studies, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, is a very eclectic discipline with people doing philological text-based studies and people doing anthropological studies and people doing archaeological or art historical and so many different approaches that people take. And so we were hoping that through this series of, um, we had five years of, of gatherings with a whole host of, um, of fascinating scholars at all levels of their career talking about what what is material Islam. <laughs> and so that became a, a great way to, to learn more from different people in different fields and to bring people into conversation with each other. And from that project, this uh, edited volume came into focus. And then also Kambiz and I are co-editing uh, currently a forthcoming issue of the Yale journal the material and visual cultures of religion that will be focused also on material islam and that will have you know scads of images and um, different formats of essays as well so that's also something to look forward to coming out uh, on this focus cool that's great um i mean while it sounds simple like okay material religion it's about things um uh, lots of listeners might not really know what what that kind of looks like in terms of uh, an analytical lens. So can you, can you talk a little bit about um, what some of the like key working assumptions and approaches uh, of material religion scholarship are for, for those people who aren't familiar with the, that kind of subfield? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, in a certain sense, it's difficult to absolutely Say that this is the approach to material religion that any that the field takes, but in all cases, what uh, scholars are looking at is what particular bodies or objects, animate and inanimate, how they populate the religious worlds in which they're located. Different theorists have different ideas about how that works. So, for some objects, only have meaning to the extent that a a human actor engages that object and gives it meaning. And that might be through a particular way of manipulating the object by, you know, uh, using a rosary to uh, engage in prayer. It's only meaningful because the human is manipulating it. It doesn't have any active um, agency of its own or any active um, uh, qualities or 
feelings that it could that it elicits in others of its own. So in those in approaches that take sort of a human-centered vision of what an object is, then essentially it leaves the object as a thing to be deciphered um, for what it signifies within that particular religious community. So it symbolizes something. It represents, so as one could quite classically say, the cross represents um, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and the sacrifice. And it has, of course, different theological resonances in different uh, different Christian denominations, but essentially we it would be recognizable to most Christians uh, it, as, as a sign uh, standing in for, for Jesus. From what is sort of emerging, not in, not entirely as the new materialist, the new materialist studies is it has a number of different manifestations, but um, sort of generally thinking about new materialism as a way of imagining that objects and things are also doing things in the world in and of themselves and elicit particular responses from, from the world that it interacts with, such that one has to move around objects in certain ways and not others that you might have, that it, humans may have emotional responses, which are not just coming imputed to the object, but are actually brought, understood by the individual to be brought to the person by that object itself. Um, or objects could be seen to have power, that they are transformative and having them in certain spaces uh, demands particular ritual attention or um, responses or ways of um, interacting with them that, is, that are understood to be correct, or even that um, certain emotional responses are understood to be appropriate or diagnostic of one's conditions, but that the whatever is authorizing that power is actually something intrinsic to the object rather than being imputed to the object by the individual. So we see a lot of more recent scholarship sort of looking at these as a, as intertwined in a way that there are the objects both have their own being in the world that shapes the world around them and that that is is not solely dependent on human meaning making but then at the same time human meaning making is always happening around objects as well <laughs> so um, I think we can think of these as uh, as many of the essays in this volume are kind of exploring um, a little bit of, of both directions that, uh, that we can see operating um, nowadays. So material religion really began with the study of Christian images and objects. Um, scholars like Colleen McDaniel and David Morgan really sort of brought history and art history together with religious studies in a, in a way to, to make take seriously things that were often thought of as peripheral or ephemeral or not as perhaps um, revealing or substantive as texts and doctrines and etc and ritual analysis and so actually to think of the thing itself as being just as important in understanding how a religion or a particular religious world is shaped and defined how people make their spaces significant to them within religions and how objects in the world in inform the way a religion exists in the world. Um, so I don't know, that's probably a little vague, but uh, but we can talk about some specific am examples in, in greater detail. But I think one of the big projects that I see this volume in particular is doing is calling attention to things that might end to particular Islamic cultures that are often not given much attention because, you know, as, as you know well, there tends to be a, a very textualist and very classicist um, bias within Islamic studies and within art history, there's tended to be a sort of formalist and descriptive bias that it tends towards originalism, the idea that something that was originally made or created to be some a particular thing that 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 it is so now essential to it that any changes are corruptive or corrosive to their identity. But then when you see these see an object in, or a place or a thing that changes identity over time, uh, you know the religious worlds in which that thing exists are not do not regard them as inauthentic or lesser than they they remain um, very important ways of of conceptualizing what what that religion is for that community. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about this relationship between um, kind of the material religion subfield and Islamic studies. 
which um, you know really hasn't been taken up in in very specific ways. Um, maybe maybe people could say art, art historians, um, but as you you just kind of mentioned, uh, you know it's kind of a certain uh, set of objects that are identified as worthy of of study in in that field. Um, so uh, can can you talk a little bit about um, how? how Islamic studies um, is, re- is kind of set up in relation to material religion um, in terms of what gets le- left out of a kind of art historian approach. Um, and perhaps why, why do you think it's taken so long um, for, for folks in Islamic studies to kind of go on this? I mean, ma- material religion has been a very specific subfield for at least two decades now. So um, and I mean, you're not, of course, the first person to to look at this, but this is one of the the first books that really kind of nails it as a as a key uh, way of doing stuff. So, why do you think it's taken so long? Well, I, I I'm this 100. Neither I nor the authors included in this book, although actually some of them have been there at the beginning, but um, <laughs> of how this uh, intersects with Islamic studies and material, the study of material religion. Um, but I think you're very right to point out that there there are some expected tensions there, and perhaps some of those have led to uh, more division within the fields of Islamic studies broadly uh, around questions of materiality than actually uh, it should or could exist, and that certainly we can see is existing now. Um, there are of course, assumptions in Islamic studies around Islamic iconophobia or iconoclasm, that Islam has an abhorrence of the image and particularly figural images, and that therefore there, there is simply a turn towards the text. Um, that And so even when one discusses things like calligraphy uh, as being the highest form of art in, in Islam, that this is merely uh, because it is so often an expression of the divine word in the form of Quranic inscriptions or, um, or praise of the prophet uh, that one sees you know, either monumentally um, as epigraphic elements of mosques mm-hmm. or other structures or things that are... Um, uh, things that are, are might be quite minute and used by the individual. So think jewelry that is engraved with passages from the Quran, etc. And so there's sort of been a focus on the discursive, if you will, and as one of the primary lenses, the primary um, modes through which Islam expresses itself in the world and the way Muslims interact with it is through concepts, through um, through text, through doctrines, through theologies. And I think one of the, um, and then for art historians and architectural historians who work in Islamic studies, um, there's been, just as with the textualists, there's a huge catch-up being played because there's such a vast repertoire and such a vast um, set of materials that have really not yet been fully um, analyzed, uh, brought into the conversations. And so these, these, I think these fields worked more in parallel to one another for, for um, longer than might ideally have been the case. But in the last you know, 15 years, I would say, 10 years at least, um, there has been a, a, a growing body of literature that is taking seriously all of these questions. And so we can think of Jamal Elias's um, fantastic book, Aisha's Cushion, uh, which came out in the uh, 2012, I believe, um, and that really takes on the the notions of how did this idea around um, images and objects being forbidden within Islam come into play, and what are all the ways in which Muslims have always um, argued and grappled and had varying views on this? Um, the work of um, the art historian Christian Gruber has, of course, also been really instrumental in helping to bring more contextualized studies of, of Islamic art into the conversation. So she goes far beyond uh, merely uh, the formal properties. Uh, Finbar Barry Flood also has, has done great work in this regard, but by really embedding Islamic things into their histories, um, Nile Green, uh, 
and many others. So this this is a I think a move that is starting to uh, coalesce in various ways and is really helping I think Islamic studies scholars across disciplines uh, to be in conversation in really productive ways, which was also a hope of this um, uh, this book edited volume project was to bring together people who worked as who were trained as art historians or anthropologists or uh, or yeah, religious studies scholars or historians, what uh, what have you, and to have people all together thinking about similar problems that we that we uh, wonder over, but through very different um, skill sets that we've developed over over the years. And so I think that this is um, one of the things that's really exciting about it, and one of the reasons why religious studies, I think. Uh, lends itself well to this because that's kind of already our habit is to draw in the theories and methods and ideas from a multiplicity of disciplines. Mm. Yeah. One other thing that you do um, in kind of setting up the book that um, I wasn't really expecting was you provide uh, perhaps what we might think of as kind of the Islamic foundation for the study of material religion in the sense of uh, kind of talking about the internal uh, theological justification for a material approach. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about that? What do, what do Islamic primary sources like the Quran or Hadith or, uh, or later theological d- discourses tell us about uh, Islamic materiality? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's it. Is such an interesting question, and of course, there are also multiple ways to look at this. And and what I lay out are, is just one way to say that. We're not just bringing, you know, 21st century theory from a Western academic approach to uh, things that have emerged from Islamic worlds and applying theory uh, without, you know, from from nowhere that has no resonance. In fact, from the get-go, we can see in in Quranic sources, in early theological discourses, um, ways in which. Muslims have always been thinking about what are what are things, <laughs> what is this, what is the material manifest world all about? How do we arrange ourselves in relation to it? What do these things mean um, in relation to the relationship between humans and God, or between the created world more broadly than just humans and God? So, from that perspective, I thought it was helpful, particularly as my hope is that this volume will be useful for classroom teaching um, to. Uh, lay out a few of those conceptual frames that can help people realize that this is not just a bunch of, you know, academics now, you know, sitting in rooms in their offices on university campuses, um, pondering a, a uh, set of prayer beads that they picked up from in wherever their research sites might be. But this is actually something that has always been a, a question in the forefront of, of many thinkers' minds. Um, so, I opened the the introduction here with a discussion evoking Ibn Arabi and his ideas about the nature of objects as existing in a state, um, the natural state of fitra, of of consciousness, of the createdness by God, that this is something that is true not just of humans and is one of the fundamental projects of the, the human Muslim to remain aware in, a, in an active way of that state of being um, and to try to work against all the forces of life that draw us away from that consciousness, um, but actually to see that everything in, in some way is existent in the way that it that it is recognizing that createdness. Um, so, but the problem for humans in particular is that we don't always understand the languages of, of the things. <laughs> and so um, Ibn Arabi uh, quotes from the Quran saying, there is nothing that does not glorify him in praise, but you do not understand their glorification. Surely he is clement and concealing. And that's from the 17th surah um, chapter. Uh, 44th verse. And so this idea that everything, all things are in the state of glorification and praise, but but it is not always easy to know what that glorification, you can't understand it, um, signifies that there are multiple levels of existence and being, and that it is a project to tune oneself into that. And tuning oneself correctly into that, those frequencies, into those registers is um, part of the, the test of, of 
life in this world, um, to orient oneself properly in relation to things that are attractive is, is a project, um, to, uh, appreciate as, as a sign of God rather than as a necessarily a, a, a source simply of worldly pleasure or, um, aesthetic, uh, merely aesthetic pleasure. Everything that is beautiful has this other level to it from that perspective. And so um, while I'm not trying to shift material Islamic studies into thinking that all materiality is simply a manifestation of an underlying theology, I think it's still important to recognize the ways in which varying Islamic concepts that and ways of thinking about the material world are, should be part of the conversation of theorizing what an object is. So when Ibn Arabi suggests that every object, an inanimate and animate thing, has a haq, has a, a kind of right that is due to it, um, a, uh, that, that that concept is actually very similar to ideas that we see coming from new materialists today who suggest uh, ideas around object agency. Um, and similar and yet different, you know, there's distinctions in the mode of argumentation, there's distinctions in what's seen as legitimate, um, uh, evidentiary, uh, material, etc. But we can still think about this as, as forms of, of theorizing the world, um, that, uh, that are, that sort of collectivizes this project of, that we are part of in academia in particular of trying to figure out. Um, but everybody is a part of whether academics or not of trying to figure out what how the world works and how they want to be within it. Um, and so I think that that kind of decenters theory a little bit from the ivory tower and helps us to recognize a multitude of ways in which we are always humans and non-human things are in a sense are are offering uh, theories of what it means to be in in this particular world and. And in the Islamic world, of course, that will always be oriented in some fashion towards uh, conceptions of the divine. Yeah, I thought it was really helpful in the in the broader conversation that um, that the book is discussing, um, especially since material approach to Islamic studies is is new. It, it, it felt uh, very useful. Um, the the book, the way you structure the book, um, you have four parts. Um, titled Tracing Images, Identifying Objects, Objects in Practice, Circulatory Systems. And, and each of these um, tackle materiality in different ways. Um, and in the first, the tracing images, you, you, uh, the, the authors use a visual image as a starting point. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about how um, exploring the production and circulation of Im- images uh, reveals uh, new or deeper Muslim histories. Yeah, no, I I mean, first I just have to say how fortunate I was to have such an amazing group of people who agreed to be a part of this project. Um, it was really just a, such a pleasure to learn with and from them. Uh, so I, I wanted to start the book with with a an essay by Kayla Renee Wheeler that is putting front and center a photo from the 1960s by uh, Gordon Parks, who was a fantastic 20th century African-American photographer who did a lot of work for Life magazine, among other things. And so in 1963, he took a picture of Ethel Sharif, um, one of the members of the Nation of Islam. And it's you know just a simply fantastic image of a woman absolutely owning herself, staring straight into the camera, and uh, wearing the uniform that she had been a part of the, the making and interpretation of within the Nation of Islam. So normally, uh, a lot of studies of uh, the Nation of Islam focus on the nation and uh, situate it as being uh, uh divergent from other forms of Islam that are that are more commonly practiced in, in other parts of the world or in the United States itself. And so the nation becomes somewhat marginalized or uh, viewed even by, by some Muslims as being non-Islamic or um, excessively variant. This essay doesn't, doesn't need to go into that kind of debate, but simply takes very seriously the ways in which um, uh, Sharif and other women in the Nation of Islam formed themselves and disciplined themselves through their uh, their 
practices of dress and how this image, um, which uh, had drew Wheeler into this uh, this particular study in so many ways, really reflects uh, just the in the centrality of the of human dignity, um, the importance of of um, agency that the, that women were able to take in terms of not only making and wearing this, but modifying and um, and making it in very in, in their own distinctive ways over over generations. It also shifts us away from understanding a particular religious movement again through texts and doctrines, but all, but seeing it as as profoundly shaped and informed by material practices and the ways in which people orient themselves towards objects. So Wheeler's essay, I think, um, is a, sets the right tone for the beginning of the book by just moving everything from to a. Um, you know, we're not starting in you know, seventh century Arabia <laughs> when we start to study Islam. We don't. It's not. It doesn't always have to be a, a story ab origino to the present um, to make sense of anything. In fact, we might get much more engaging stories and understand things on their own terms if we resist that sometimes. So I really appreciated that about that essay. Um, and then we move into uh, Christy uh, Christian Gruber's. Um, uh, fantastic sort of detective story with a kind of forensic analysis of an image she found of a young Muhammad in Iran and how that image circulated and resonated with different images that appeared in um, in French and other sources that moved between media from, uh, from paper drawings to carpets and etchings and engravings and a whole host of other other sources. Um, and so from this, we, we see the circulations of ideas and conceptions of greatness and the ways in which um, which ideas come may originate in one place and circulate to another and then be reconsumed within the place that the first image came from in, a, in all sorts of um, uh, fascinating ways. And so here the image... Um, in a sense, it isn't a single image at all, but a, rather an image that um, that adjusts and modifies and and creates a, a kind of a conversation between these uh, different milieu in which it is oriented. And then finally, the last essay in that section from uh, Richard McGregor talks about um, the tracings of the Prophet's sandal and how that they work both as objects that carry buttaka or the blessing power. Um, to heal, for example, or to provide um, a sort of a focal point for, for worship and devotion. And he works through ideas from Deleuze to Ibn Arabi again and Ibn Asakir um, to think about what what is repetition and how, so, you know, surprisingly, um, we, we think of copies as being um, often less authentic or less original and but this essay i think really helps us to to challenge that and consider what is the power of of repetition and replication the uh the second part is uh you call it identifying objects um but this section really what is up to is um thinking about how objects are used as a means for for marking or making identities um can you talk a little bit about uh how the, the, the objects in this section um, mark communal belonging in Muslim context? Uh, what kinds of meanings do the these objects take on for their users? Yeah, so the three objects here are um, lapel pins worn in the Nation of Islam and the five percenter um, nations of gods and earths. Uh, prayer beads, particularly prayer beads in the Tijani, West African um Sufi community and a cap worn particularly in this case by Chishti Sufis in South Asia. And so in each case, uh, it's again, each of these objects mark belonging in a particular group uh, or in a particular subgroup. And the question of who gets to wear or use them, uh, how that comes about, um, the question of where this is located within individual practice and identity formation and self-discipline and making oneself an appropriate um, wearer or user of the particular object. Um, each essay by um, Michael Knight, Usman Kobo, and uh, Scott Krugel, respectively, um, each of these objects create a sense of, of being a, a member of a particular group, and they not only 
you know, as a way of marking that and displaying that to those who would know how to read them legibly. So not everybody um, who walks down a street in, um, in uh, say, Hyderabad would know that the particular style of cap that a person is wearing is um, related to the Chishti Sufis or and some might know, some might not. So not everybody knows that a particular lapel pin signifies that you're a five percenter, or that the number of beads um, in and the way they're marked out in your in your tasbih or your rosary is uh, means you're a particular subgroup of the Tajani uh, Sufi community. Um, but through the, each of these studies, you actually you learn so much about affective belonging. You learn about the politics of belonging. Um, about the ways in which these markers were, were signified for uh, insiders and outsiders and became, uh, became central in, in identifying and shaping both personal practice as well as, um, as sort of a collective identity. Um, and yeah, they're, they're just incredibly rich ways of thinking about particular objects as, as being transformative and identifying. The, um, the third part, uh, Objects in Practice, uh, looks at the life of material items in action. Um, all, all, all the essays are, are great, but these are, these are really, really interesting. Um, what are the ways objects can, can shape behavior or conduct? Um, and how do, how do they help produce uh, ethical habits or ideals? Yeah, no, thanks. But, um, so here in this uh, set of essays, we have a piece um, by Mark Swallow on um, the lamp that is lit in Bektashi Sufi traditions in Turkey, um, an essay um, on uh, tatwis or amulets that are made by a Muslim woman healer in India by Joyce Flukiger, and an essay on um, the tablet on which people, in, in this case in Morocco, uh, uh, used to learn the Quran as a discipline. And this is by um, Omar Bloom. And there, each of these essays, again, um, gives you not only a glimpse into that particular Islamic world, but also shows you how wor- working and being with these objects shapes the individuals as the appropriate users of those very objects. So in the case that um, Omar writes about in uh, in his story about a former slave who um, grows up in a zawiya, in a uh, Sufi center, and be- just happens to come to the attention of the Sufi teacher because he's learned been memorizing the Quran just by being in this atmosphere. And then he is given a tablet, he's given a pen, he's shown how to, to, to prepare and use the tablet and the pen and how to um, interact with it and to come to see this as an extension of his own body and also as a marker of his changed status as somebody who's now literate and somebody who is, um, is deeply respected as, a, uh, as somebody who is a knower of the Quran. And so uh, I think all of those essays um, in various ways uh, show us that. The um, Mark Swallow's essay on the Bektashi lamp, you see how the poetry that the Bektashis recite um, reflects ideas of light and illumination as being a really powerful sign and metaphor for insight and understanding uh, for the, for the, um, the practitioner in relation to the master in relation to God. And so there's these very rich multi-layered readings. Um, and uh, Joyce Flukiger's essay on the, on the Tawiz tells you so much about how this, the ability to make these particular objects um, and what they represent as both as a woman healer in a context where uh, women are not always uh, identified as being um, the carriers of these traditions. But, you know, this, uh, this account tells you a lot about the making, the structure, the relationships, and really that, that incredibly relational quality of the Tatwis as being um, predicated on how the, the healer and her clientele are inter- interacting around these objects. And and you know what what's involved in in that whole dynamic, so um, objects in practice. Uh, the the last part um, 
you call circulatory systems, it's kind of hard to characterize. Um, I'm hoping you you can do a better job than I can, but um, it's it, it's something um, we might think of it how things in their own conceptual motion uh, disrupt assumptions about materiality itself. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that description, but uh, so uh, what 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 uh, what are your authors trying to do in this section, um, and and what do you hope readers come away with uh, when thinking about material Islam after reading these essays? Yeah, well, I think you're totally right that in some ways these essays, particularly the last two, in that they're talking about water, which is both a thing and also not a thing in a sense. I mean, it can one draw out a single drop of water, which is what um, Dee Fairchild Ruggles does in her chapter on um, the Algebe del Rey in Granada. And this uh, idea that where she's imagining tracing the, the the movement of a single drop of water through these aquifers and um, and aqueducts and uh, the systems that brought water from the mountains to these, um, these huge settlements in um, or from the time huge and and again what is the the minutiae of that how did that actually come into be how did that move who is involved in making that but and then how also does the the water itself shape that system and uh, and demand certain kinds of of, of human responses. So here we see the sense that you know humans can try to modify the world around them but there are also ways in which the world demands particular kinds of interactions. Even if you were going to try to modify it, you have to respond to the condition in which it is in. Um, and similarly, in um, uh, Anna Gade's piece on the Zemzem water and the aquifers and the system of, uh, of water and what this means for the environment, um, she's making lots of uh, claims and challenges about the ways in which um, uh, environmental humanities can really bring new insights into material religion that are often not considered. So uh, one of the things that this set of essays where we think of, um, and in Roxani Margariti's piece on uh, numismatics, on on, uh, coinage, then the Rasulid period that have fish on them and what that circulating object of the fish signified, both in terms of its relationship to political power, but also its relationship to um, to currency and financial power, and also in its relationship to a particular notion of Islamicness um, that is being expressed through these the the movement of objects. In all three of these essays, we see a, 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 almost a there's a specificity, but also an abstraction. You know, we have a couple examples of particular coins, but we you know, following a coin is would is would be a slightly different project. We have this whole hydrological system in Granada, but we're trying to trace a particular drop as a way of of understanding all of the forces and all of the um, uh, uh, elements that make up a a hydrological system, and that come to to be found uh, sort of reaching their apex for Ruggles in this well and how humans interacted with that. And then for, for Gade, who's really trying to disrupt a, uh, our, our whole notion of uh, human-oriented understandings of reality, um, she, she takes on a lot of, um, of religious studies theory. She digs back into Eliada and other sources in order to think about how we think about materiality and how we think about religion and categories and being and of uh, in this world so um, they're kind of the most atypical objects in the groups of all the of all the objects in the book but then I think through that we also see the sort of expansiveness that is possible if we if we don't think of Islamic objects purely again in terms of the very traditional kinds of things uh, that you know, what is an Islamic object? We imagine um, perhaps perhaps prayer beads, but, you know, not in nearly as complex a way as Kobo um, illustrates. Uh, we might think about calligraphy. We might think about um, particular manuscripts and that have uh, certain histories. But these things, I think, help us to expand our senses about what is a material object and what is material Islam. 
Yeah, and uh, I think at this point in the book, if you if you are reading through the whole book, um, it kind of lays out um, more dominant approaches to material Islam, and then this kind of helps uh, kind of shake the ground a little bit more to say, well, what else can we what else can we do here? Yeah, um, it's a, a provocation, if you will. That <laughs> I think opens up some great doors. Um, which yeah, is something works that, well. That Gate is fantastic at. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, uh, I hope listeners will, will check it out. Um, I'm excited to, to hear about these other projects that are the going on in the future. Um, I'm, as somebody who's edited books, I know you can't include everything you want. So I want to <laughs> ask you, uh, not only, um, what are, what are some of the things that you would have hoped to include in the book that perhaps you weren't because of whatever reasons, um, but also, um, if, if we think of the book as a as a prompt, um, what what might you um, suggest or gesture to as the future study of Islam through objects? What kind of things would you hope to see uh, if you could, uh, you know, shake a little wand and make all the the projects come out as as you want them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. There's. I mean, there's so many things that one would want to do if you had all the time and space and uh, resources in the world and that everybody was always, uh, if their schedules always worked on your timetable <laughs> as well, which I know since you just had a big edited volume come out that you know, you know, that's not how that works always. But, yeah. um, we can dream. And so I, I mean, one thing that's also coming out of this broader project, uh, I mentioned briefly in the beginning that um, Kambi's Ghanai Basari and I are working on this epi- this um, uh, edited uh, issue, I guess. It's funny to call an online journal an issue, but I suppose it is. And so this, an issue of MAVCOR, the, the Yale Material and Visual Cultures of Religion Project. And so that's uh, one next thing that we're doing to try to keep the conversation going with some of the people that we um, worked with and some new people um, that has a bunch of different essays. And these are kind of in a different format. So there's both long form journal articles, um, you know, that are investigating the practice of Kelwa, for example, by uh, Nate Hofer has got a fantastic essay on the sort of the material and embodied somatic experience of Sufi retreat. And um, so that and uh, another essay um, that is going to be by uh, Kambis himself on, which will be a short object narrative, which is a format they have on uh, mosque socks and socks that you can wear um, all day to keep your your ablutions active. Um, so there's a whole range of things. And then I'm contributing an essay to that on some of the work that I've been doing in, in India, in particular in this essay on a shrine that uh, a Sufi tomb shrine in, uh, in Bangalore, Bengaluru, um, that is visited once a year by a um, Hindu priest who's incarnating a, Hin- uh, a goddess and she comes and dances around this tomb three times um, during a overnight procession around the around the city um, that happens in the spring every year. So I'm interested in some of those material exchanges that occur at the shrine, both in that sort of spectacular way, but also in an everyday sense, very much as thinking about these material engagements and bodily engagements as ways of uh, of expressing and marking. Um, collective belonging in this locale and of being a part of that place, um, which is partly animated by the recognition of religious others as being co- being joint members of that of that community. And uh, for those who are not following the current political conditions in India right now, for Indian Muslims, that's been a particularly challenging um, uh, enterprise to remind non-Muslim Indians that they are in fact uh, members of the same society and culture and history and um, and should be valued as such. So, um, so yeah, so there's a whole bunch of other pieces that are coming out in that group that'll be exciting. But I, one thing I would actually kind of hope that might 
be taken up um, would be to see volumes like uh, Judaism through objects and Baha'i through objects, etc. And sort of to see if there would be, you know, these shorter teachable essays that could help to expand uh, through particular things um, our understandings of a host of, of religions. So rather than, again, beginning with, you know, a sort of linear chronological histories that um, parade from the beginning to to now, um, thinking about disrupting that a little bit and recognizing that if we don't start with origins, then we actually can relocate power and um, authority within the religions as, as, as objects of study. Then, and that could be a really productive and exciting direction for uh, the study of religion more broadly. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, this is this has been wonderful. I, I want to give you an opportunity. I don't know if uh, there's anything that we didn't discuss or any other projects you want to discuss that you're working on now um, before I let you go. Um, well, I, I've got a couple of projects on. One is a project I've been doing for something like 10 years now, uh, comparing shared spaces in India and Turkey and looking at how people imagine secular belonging in constitutionally secular, but increasingly religiously nationalist uh, polities such as India and Turkey. And I'm interested in those spaces where religions, minority and majority religions are still gathering together and how that um, informs their conceptions of of being part of the same same society. And so that's a project I'm I'm writing on and hopefully we'll finish before (laughs) the end of time. Um, (laughs) And and I've also um, right up your alley, Christian, started a... uh, kind of a digital humanities project with some colleagues in, uh, in France and in the U.S. who are all studying shared sacred spaces. And we want to, we're developing a mapping and visualization uh, project where we could provide resources and materials and bibliographies and images and videos of um, spaces where multiple religions have been gathering historically or presently and um, uh that have been very richly studied, but are often downplayed because um, as humans, as uh, we all seem to, to be crisis driven and we look at things where everything is falling apart, but um, there's actually these very rich and robust histories of collective belonging in shared spaces. And so we wanna make that um, sort of a, an evidentiary <laughs> um, tool that people can use to, um, to push back against certain expectations, not rejecting the idea that conflict happens at all, but rather simply um, trying to to bring this into the story as well, um, that these these are going on at the same time and, and always have been. And so that's a that's something that we're we're just getting off the ground and hopefully we'll be landing on the on the web in the coming years. Cool. That sounds awesome. Good luck. Uh finishing them before the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, and thanks for making time to talk about this great project. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.